Amen. Stand with me together, please. Let's stand together. Let's open our Bibles to James chapter 5, verse 16. And I hope you'll take that at heart and come and join us tomorrow night at prayer time. James chapter 5, the book of James is written to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. These are Jewish Christians who got scattered during the time of the persecution. And, and, and James is writing them a letter of encouragement and instruction. In verse 16, he says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I really want you to capture this. Many versions put it this way. Elijah was a man just like us. Just like you and me. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Okay, here's the pop quiz for the day. Are you ready? Christianity is not about religion. It is about relationship. So let me ask you, what's your relationship with God like? Is he truly your reward? Have you gotten to know him so well that just... That, that you find yourself just hungry to get in his presence sometimes because he's your reward. Have you, have you found him to be your joy in the middle of pain, your strength in the middle of pain? Remember when you were little and, and, and you get scared or you were little and, and you get you know, something uncertain would happen? What would you do? You would run to mom or dad. You would take off to them and wrap your arms around their legs and uh, you know, want them to comfort you or take care of you or protect you. Have, do you do that with God? Has he become a, in such a personal relationship with you that when, you're, when you have questions, you run to him? When you have fears, you run to him? When you have this personal need, you go seek him? What kind of relationship uh, with God do you really have? This is what we're talking about when we're talking about our prayer life. It, it, we're talking about this game-changing aspect of life when we learn to pray and we learn to have this intimate relationship with God. It be, he becomes transforming in our life. He becomes truly the most important relationship in our life. Last week we talked about the lost value of persevering prayer for the needs of life. Of being a people who see the needs of our life, whether it's a temptation in our life, a, a need of somebody that we love, uh, our country, whatever it might be, and learning, I'm not going to give up. I have authority to do something about this. I am going to pray. And, and here's what we talked about last week. Remember, we said set an appointment with God every day to pray. Set an appointment with God. Set a length of time and keep it. Ask God to show you the promises of his word. Enlist others to pray with you. And don't give up until you see change. Christians, for the most part, we're not opposed to prayer. However, I want you to think about your prayer life right now. What does your prayer life look like? 
for most people, <clears throat> most Christians, you have these moments of commitment. We hear a message. We hear a series. We read a book. Somebody talks to us, and we kind of, yeah, I need to start doing this more, and we kind of get our prayer life up and going, and then it's just really kind of inconsistent. Most people, though, they have some level of consistency. Maybe we, we pray at our meals, and we're thankful to God at our meals. I hear people tell me, yeah, I pray every day in the car uh, on the way to work, or I, I, you know, I pray with my children before they go to bed. And if somebody at church wants to pray, they'll pray uh, with them. Or if somebody's leading in prayer, they'll sit back in the back and you'll, we'll pray with them. Uh, some, even, some people even have a devotional time in their life where they read the Bible a little bit. And then at the end, they, they pray a couple of prayers about things uh, that, they're, that they're concerned about or that somebody's brought up to them. And frankly, there's nothing wrong with any of that. In fact, I would encourage you to make prayer uh, like that more common in your life. I, I would encourage you to, to pray with people. When people ask you, will you pray with this? Don't just say, yeah, I, I will. Stop and pray with them right then. Make it a natural response. When somebody expresses a concern to you, let's just say, well, let's pray about it right now. I mean, the world isn't afraid to act like the world in front of us. Why should we be afraid to act like Christians in the world? Amen? But, but I, I want you to capture this, though. What I just described is the prayer of the comfortable. Fairly comfortable. Everything's pretty good for them. Everything's going all right for them. They're pretty comfortable. What James describes about Elijah is different than that. Elijah's prayer was fervent. Fervent prayer is the prayer of the desperate. Desperate prayer is marked by passion of spirit. Desperate prayer is marked by time. People go into desperate prayer not with the thought of, I can pray until I get to work or I can pray, uh, and, you know, but I need to keep it fast because the food's getting cold. Desperate prayer is a prayer of, I am staying here until I feel some release. Desperate prayer has a consistency to it. It keeps, the, the thing you're desperate about keeps coming up in your mind, it keeps coming up in your spirit, and you've determined, I'm going to pray about that every time it comes up. Desperate prayer is a pleading prayer. It's a crying out prayer. It's a desperation to God prayer. And desperate prayer is a prayer of faith. Desperate prayer is birthed in the heart of a person when they realize that there's something going terribly wrong and things must change. Things must be different. But desperate prayer also sees that God is the only answer to the problem. It's come to this conclusion, I can't do anything about this without God. I need God to change this. And I am not going to give up. I'm not going to surrender to this. I'm going to pray until I see an answer. After the death of Solomon, uh, the king of Israel, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two parts through rebellion. The northern kingdom had most of the tribes of Israel, and they called themselves Israel. 
The southern kingdom was known as Judah, but it had Jerusalem and the temple. Jeroboam, the leader of the rebellion, came to this fear that the people would do what they'd been taught to do and go to Jerusalem these several times a year to celebrate God's deliverance in their life, that they would go there and develop a loyalty to Jerusalem and want to unite the kingdoms again and want to unify the kingdoms. So his response to that was he turned from God. He turned from him, and he set up two golden calves to worship for those people to go to and to worship. And he said to them, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. These are the ones that set you free. Now, friends, I'm going to stop right there because this is a call to know the Word of God. It's very, very, the enemy's tactics are very similar today. He doesn't want us to understand the word, the word of God today. So here's what the enemy tells people today. He says, everyone's going to a better place. When you die, we're all going to a better place. Now, this is a lie. This isn't true. He says this. He says, Jesus is, you know, and God, they're just a God of love. And whatever you choose to do with your life, however you choose to live your life, whatever things that you know, are in the heart of your life, God understands them. He loves you. Everything's okay. We should all just accept each other in any way that we feel. And I'm telling you, hear, hear me, the enemy's lying to us because we don't know the Word of God. We don't understand. Jesus, the reality of Jesus shows us the depth and the price of our sin. The death of Jesus on the cross, going to the crucifixion, shows what we owe God and how far we've fallen from God. The, the, the Jesus going to the cross shows us the depth of our helplessness, that we cannot fix ourselves, and the curse of sin that is before a holy God that we're going to have to answer to someday. And, it, and the cross shows us the greatness of his grace to send his son to rescue us. Not to leave us the same way, not to leave us as we are, but to rescue us from sin, to set us free from sin, to transform our thinking and our hearts so that we are changed into his image. Now this is... This is the, the lie of the enemy. He's saying, come worship at these golden calves instead of turning to a holy God. In the northern kingdom for the next several years, excuse me, the next several generations, the kings of the nor northern kingdom are marked by these words. It will say, this king died and this, this person rose into place to be the king. And then it's marked by these words. He did evil more than all the kings before him. It was a downward spiral of moving away from God. It was at this time that Elijah comes onto the scene, a prophet of God. He is present as the ruler of the northern kingdom is a guy named Ahab. And the Bible says about Ahab after he becomes, it just talked about his dad who was worse than all the kings before him. And then it says Ahab 
becomes king, and he's worse than all of them before him. And then it adds this little caveat that's very interesting. And it says on top of all that, he married this woman, Jezebel. Now what a statement. I mean, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? He's worse than all the other kings, and to make it even worse, he married Jezebel. Why is the Bible so harsh about Jezebel? Jezebel was the daughter of the ruler of Sidonia. Sidonia was a small country just north of the northern kingdom, uh, just north of Israel. When she married, when she married Ahab and came into Israel, she brought with her the worship of Baal and the worship of Azura. Azura was the goddess of fertility. Fertility was of great importance to them, naturally great importance to them. They were an agricultural society. Their livelihood depended upon the crops growing, and so they, they wanted things to be fertile. They needed their family to be fertile. And the worship of Azra could involve sexual relationships with the priests and with prostitutes. It was a rejection of God. It was completely morally corrupt. It was a turning from the, from, from the God of righteousness to a God of immorality. And she brought that into the kingdom of Israel. Not only that, there was Baal, who was, you know, in, in theory, her son. And it's important to capture this. I want you to hear this. He was the God of storms and rain. Again, important for the crops. They would dance before these gods. They would cut themselves. See, the enemy just makes you really stupid when you begin to worship him. They would cut themselves as part of their worship. And at times, they would sacrifice their children for the sake of getting the blessing of those gods. Jezebel brought this worship, and she brought these priests into the northern kingdom with her, and she wanted to wipe out the worship of God, even to the point where she would have the, the prophets of God, the people who were trying to serve God, she would have them killed. Ahab joined with her, and he set up a temple to Baal, just like we had a temple to God in Jerusalem. He set up a temple to Baal in Samaria. Now, most of us, when we think about Samaria, we think of it in New Testament terms. Samaria was a region of the country that, that we hear Jesus pass through or others had to pass through to get from one place or the other. But in, in Old Testament times, Samaria was simply a city. So there was a city called Samaria, and he set up a temple to Baal in this city. In the middle of this is Elijah, a prophet of God. Uh, he, he's he's got to be a little fearful of Jezebel and Ahab, and they're, they're going to be out to kill him for quite a while. But he has no power of his own to change things. He has no power to really influence the people on his own. The power is in the hands of the rulers, the influencers of the day, the people who have their, a voice and have the wealth and have the government have all the things on their side pushing towards a rejection of God and acceptance of Baal. So the people in this moment are wavering. They're wavering between 
two opinions. They've, they've lost the foundation of truth in this moment. So in this moment, when the northern kingdom was faltering, Elijah, the prophet of God, begins to fervently pray. It is the prayer of the desperate. The one who sees how bad things are and knows they have to change. And the Bible says that for the next three and a half years, it doesn't rain in the northern kingdom. See, you say, why that? God went right to the heart of the issue. Who was Baal? He was the God of storms and rain. And God said, not anymore. Who's that? She was the God of fertility. What, what happens? There's not going to be crops now. There's no rain. God strikes right to the heart of it at the word of Elijah, the prophet of God. To the point that Ahab, instead of turning to God, he sees Elijah as a troublemaker. This is a typical response. Instead of, instead of people seeing that Ahab says, oh, he's the troubler of Israel. He's the one that's causing the problem. But what was really happening is God was showing that he was more powerful than all the other gods of the world. You can read this whole story in 1 Corinthians 17 and 18. To it comes to this point when they're on Mount Carmel and, Mo, and, and, and Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal and confronts the people and he says to them, stop wavering between two opinions. Choose ye this day whom ye will serve. And he calls them to repentance. In the, in the book of James, that's written to the scattered tribes, the scattered Jewish believers, they would know the story of Elijah very well. And James is writing to them to encourage them to let loose of some of their religious connections and enter into this great personal relationship with God. And he's showing them how God is going to move in their lives if they will obey him. He's teaching them about moving in their lives. And he comes to this point where he's talking about prayer and he says to them these very key words that I'll tell you, as long as I've been studying this, this last couple of weeks as I've been looking, this has been so encouraging to me. Elijah, a man just like you, a man just like us, of the same passions that we have. Elijah was a man just like us. And it says Elijah prayed earnestly, fervently, desperately for God to intervene in his circumstances. He held on to God in his circumstances. Whether that, and friend, that, that comes down to us, whether it's a temptation in our life, whether it's a loved one that's far from God, whether it's our country that is running from God. The men and women of God can enter into this call to prayer. And that's exactly what Elijah did. That's what James is telling us we need to do in those moments. And when, he says, when he did that, they all knew that when he did that, that God strikes at the heart of the matter. He goes right to the issue. And now famine comes 
for the sake of repentance. The prayer life of the desperate is different than the prayer life of the comfortable or even worse, the surrendered. The one who just said, you know, this is just the way it is. It's the way it's going to be. There's nothing I can do about it. I give up. The comfortable, the ones who kind of shut their eyes to all the things going on around them and they're just kind of comfortable. The prayer life of the desperate is different than the prayer life of the comfortable. The church has the authority to pray and see the results of Elijah in our lives and in our day. There is nothing that you are facing. There is nothing that's going on in your home, in your family, in your world. There's nothing that's going on in our country that is greater than God. But as we talked last week, the victory point is this. The victory has been won, but faithfulness must be applied. In Jesus' time on the earth, the disciples were with Jesus when he did many great things. They heard Jesus preach great messages. They saw Jesus open open blind eyes. They saw Jesus help heal people who were lame. They saw Jesus cure people who had leprosy. They saw Jesus cast out demons. They saw Jesus raise the dead. They saw Jesus take a few loaves and fishes and multiply them to feed the thousands. They saw Jesus raise the dead. Now, I would think that my question would be, how did you do that? Doesn't that seem like a natural question? But we have no record in the Bible of them asking him to teach them how to do those things. If they did, if they asked Jesus that, the Holy Spirit didn't even deem it worthy to put in the Bible for us to know about. What the Holy Spirit did deem important to put in the Bible was another question they asked. They asked him to teach them how to pray. They said, teach us how to pray. See, the cry to God in a moment of hurt is very natural in our life. If you're scared, you're worried, we run to dad, right? We run to mom. But the prayer that changes us, the prayer life that transforms our lives and others' lives, is not the prayer of the comfortable It is the prayer of the desperate. It is a prayer that is marked by time being spent. It's a prayer of someone who sees that things need to change. It's a prayer of passion. It's a prayer that is consistent, that every time the thing comes up, they're going, oh, this has to change. This can't remain the same. This has to be different. It's a prayer of of resolve that says, by faith, And whenever I see this and I think about it, I'm going to lift my voice to God. It's a prayer that that wants to spend time in the presence of God talking about this issue until change comes. That's the prayer that changes us. And that's the prayer that transforms the world. And I'm telling you, that's a prayer life that you have to learn to have. You won't learn transforming prayer in a sermon. You'll hear about it. 
I can talk to you about it. I can tell you about how prayer changes things. You can look in the Bible and you can read stories about how God changed things because people prayed. We read the story of Elijah and see how things become different. But you will not learn about transforming prayer in a personal, relational way where it moves away from just being a comfortable prayer to a transforming prayer until you begin to pray. And I, I want to tell you today, <clears throat> nothing wrong with our prayers. <coughs> Excuse me, at dinner time, if you want to pray on your way to work, nothing wrong with that. Keep praying in the car on the way to work. Uh, if you pray with the kids at night, that's a great prayer, a great time to pray. That all, the, all of our prayer changes things. But if you want to have real intimacy with God, you need to treat God relationally like you would any, anybody else that you want to be have an intimate relationship with. You've got to spend alone time with God. You've got to spend undistracted time with God. This isn't you're driving down the street and as you're going down the street, you're going, oh God, it's going to be a tough day today. This is going on. No, this is alone time where God can speak to you and where you can speak to him. This is time where you really pursue the presence of God and let your faith in God really grow and be transformed. Now, let me give you a couple of tools to develop, because, you, you know, I can't make you have this, but I can give you some tools to develop a prayer life. Here, here's just a couple of simple things that will help you. One is, <clears throat> just a very simple thing, develop a prayer list. Develop a list of things you're concerned about or things that people have asked you to pray for, that when you go into prayer, you stop and you pray about those things. And you really ask God to give you wisdom. You really ask God to move in them. And you take time. The prayer list will help you expand your time from one minute, two minutes, to 10 minutes, and 15 minutes, and to really begin to enter into a relationship with God. The second thing is look, as you read the Bible, look for prayers in the Bible. The Psalms are full of prayers that are relevant prayers for us to pray today. Ephesians chapter 1 is one that we like to talk about here. It's where Paul is praying for the church. He says, I pray this for you all the time. Uh, and he, he says, I pray that you have a spirit of wisdom, a spirit of revelation, a spirit of knowledge. That's a great prayer to pray for my children. That's a great prayer to pray for my grandchildren. That's a great prayer that I pray for this church. That's a great prayer for us to pray for our friends. God, give them a spirit of wisdom that they know how to act. Give them a spirit of revelation that they see who you are and they know what's going on in the world around them. Give them a spirit of knowledge. Let them grow in you. Let them not just be walking through this, this life with just the knowledge of the world. Let them walk through this life with the knowledge of you. But the greatest place, of course, that we learn how to really enter into this relationship with prayer is in the Lord's prayer itself. As you set time to pray and you begin to use this kind of as a, as a guiding post to your prayer, you will find yourself praying one or two or three of these points throughout your prayer life on a, on a growing pattern. Here's, here's the great pattern to start. In Matthew 6, and the, he says, Jesus says this, uh, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This, this is where you uh, keep the complaint department light off and you come with a heart of thanksgiving. This is where you begin to think 
not about your problems, but you begin to think about your victories. And you begin to give thanks to God for who he is and what he has done in your life. This is where you begin to thank God for your salvation. It's where you begin to thank God for the hope of heaven. It's, it's where you begin to thank God that he will lead you and teach you and, and, and speak to you. It's where you thank God that he is God Almighty and the great creator. It's where you thank him for being the lamb, Jesus, for being the lamb of God who was your sacrifice so you don't have to pay the price for your sin. It's where you thank Jesus for being the king of kings so that no matter what you face in the past or what you'll face in the future, they all must bow to him as king of kings. It's where you thank the Holy Spirit for being your counselor to teach you and to remind you of things, for being your comforter in times of need, for being your gift giver, for being your provider. It's a time of worship and thanksgiving. And I want to tell you, if you'll take time to do that in your prayer life, well, I'll tell you one thing, the fruit of it's going to be your faith in God will grow. When you begin to thank him, for being the truth teller, that you can count on him never to lie, and his promises come rolling back into your life, and you go, wait a second, God never lies, God always tells the truth, and he's promised me this. Faith begins to build in your heart. Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to tell you, this is where persevering prayer is the foundation of persevering prayer where we are asking God's will into our life this is a submission of our will to his Jesus not only taught us to pray this way he prayed this way in the garden before the crucifixion when the cup was before him he said God I'd rather father I'd rather do something else but not my will thine be done thy will be done so we come before God with our requests. We come before God with our desires. And, and we persevere praying for them, but we pray with, for them in this attitude of, God, we want your will to be done. Now listen, I know there are things that I pray that are absolutely in God's will. If I'm praying for a lost friend, I know it's God's will for them to be saved. He says so in the Bible. It's God's will that all men be saved. So I know I'm praying right in the middle of God's will. When I pray for God's presence to rest upon our church, rest upon you, and I pray for him to bless your homes, I know that's right in the middle of God's will. There are other prayers that are my will, but I don't know if they are God's will. Are you with me? So you have, you know, three guys praying that one girl would marry them. Some of them are wrong. Maybe all three of them are wrong. The key to my prayer life in those areas is this. God, let your will. God, she looks really pretty to me. I'd really, uh, I, I really like her. She's really nice. She's great. She's wonderful. But God, not my will. Your will be done. We're praying. And it's this place of persevering prayer, of waiting and seeking God's will, wanting his will more than anything else. It's, it's, it's that way when you're praying for a new job. God, give me the job you want me to have, not the one I want to have. Give me, the watch. Give me what's best for me, Lord. This is praying in God's purpose. And this is where we hang out and persevere in prayer for the victory of God. We settle here for a while. 
and we take these things that we're praying about that need to be changed, our country, our lost friend, and we just hang out there a little. God, we're asking for your will to be done in our country. We're asking for your will to be done in my son or my daughter's life. We're asking for your will to be done in this, in this thing. We're seeking you, God. We're praying to you. Matthew 6, 11. Give us this day our daily bread. This is a recognition of God's provision in our lives. It's a submission again of our lives. God, you know what our needs are. Thank you for letting me bring my needs before you. This is remembering who God is and asking for his blessing. This is a remembering that in everything that we have, God's a supplier. Matthew 6, 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive, as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is about how we see people and how we see ourselves. This is an adjustment of our spirits. This, my dad used to call this a dangerous prayer because if you pray, God, forgive me the way I forgive others and you don't forgive others, you're asking God not to forgive you. That's a dangerous prayer. What, what really needs to be about is God, help me to see others. Help me to forgive others as you've forgiven me because I now see them as you see me. I see them with grace. I see them with mercy. I see them with love. Father, see me that way. Help me to feel that way. Let me be yours. This is about bringing my spirit into unity with the love of God and to be healed from what others have done to me. Matthew 6, 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from from evil. This is about participating in the spiritual battle you are in. Listen, you may not know it right now. The enemy would prefer you not know it. The enemy would prefer that you not pay any attention to it. He'd prefer that you not think about it. But you are in a spiritual battle. Two weeks from today, we're going to talk about what that spiritual battle is like, what it looks like, and how we're supposed to pray in it because you are in spiritual conflict. The enemy wants you to sleep through it while he destroys you, while he destroys your family, while he destroys our country. And we need to wake up to the spiritual battle that we're in. And this is what Jesus is calling to. This is about resisting the plans of the enemy in our life. Now, we're going to practice all of these things tomorrow night. And I invite you to come and be a part of that tomorrow night between 5 and 6, come anytime, or 6.30, come anytime you, you want to. Now, what does your prayer life look like? What does your life look like? Are there, are there some things that you should, you should be desperate about? What does your prayer life look like? Does it look comfortable? Listen, the world needs some people. The world needs some Christians who are really uncomfortable. The world needs some Christians who are desperate. Mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, your children, your grandchildren, they need parents and grandparents who are desperate, who are absolutely desperate. The issues that divide our country today are not simply political issues. They're not about big government or small government and which one's the best or how to build a good economy or should the federal government rule or should state and local governments have the most power. It's not about political issues anymore. Today, the issues have deeper and they have a moral impact. It's about what our religious freedom is going to be like in the next generations. This is why we're bringing in, in a couple of weeks, uh, David Gibbs on September the 1st, and he's going to talk to us about 
the encroachment upon our rights as Christians that's happening in our country today that we need to be praying about. Today, the battle's not just about government issues. It's about the sanctity of life and whether we see life as sacred or whether we see life as cheap. Whether we see it as convenience or whether we see it as a blessing. It's the battle of the moral soul of our country. It's the battle uh, uh, for the proper boundaries of sexual morality. And whether we're going to see and be a people of biblical sexual morality or whether we're going to give in to the flesh, the powers that be, the kings that rule, the forces that influence are all whelming against us and more and more people are worshiping at the feet of Baal saying they're worshiping God. And the call of the church is to awaken in this moment and to get uncomfortable. I hope you leave here today uncomfortable. I hope you leave here today with a sense of desperation for your children and your grandchildren that will drive you to the point that you'll say, I am a man, I'm a woman, just like Elijah was a man, and he prayed, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to believe God. We are much like Israel in Elijah's days. We're being called to accept his right, things that God has condemned as wrong, and it's an overwhelming force against us. But Elijah was a man just like us, and he fervently prayed, and God answered, make an appointment with God and stick to it day after day. Samuel Chadwick, a great pastor years gone by, says this. Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings power. It brings life. It brings rain. It brings life itself. It brings God. Andrew Murray, great man of prayer and a great writer about prayer, made this statement. We must begin to believe that God, in the mystery of prayer, entrusted us with a force that can move the heavenly world and bring it down to earth. That doesn't happen through comfortable prayer. That happens through desperate prayer, consistent prayer, an understanding of the battle that we're in, and an understanding of the, of the answer. When the church regains its ability to tarry before God, the church will regain its ability to walk in God's power. So, my call is to you. Get uncomfortable. Look at the world around you and realize the only answer is not in our cleverness. It's not in our being kind. It's not even in our gifts. It's in the power of God moving through our world, and we need the power of God to move. Let's stand together today and let's pray.